yet it's more healthy to take cortisol the way the body releases it and then it sustains it during a brief period of three to four hours. If you add a little methyl cellulose, it'll stay a little longer, say six hours. Well, six hours even if you don't, just take it, right? Although it's not sick. You know, I found when people just took it without the methyl cellulose part of it, it would just go up and it would go down. And then all day long they were constantly chasing themselves around, as I did too. What are you seeing in people with low cortisol levels? Uh, what do you observe and what kind of symptoms do these people have? It's kind of an interesting thing. Cortisol actually acts like, you know, like, like it escorts, if you will, kind of like the union truckers. It brings energy into the mitochondria of your brain cells. The mitochondria is where you make energy, like the power plant. And so it brings it in, it brings it in, and if yours are on strike, you're in trouble because you're not getting that energy in there. You're not getting the fuel to go in there. That's glucose. It's what Dr. Hertog described as catabolic. In a positive sense, it's releasing uh, free fatty acids, glucose, and amino acids into the general tissues where it's needed, as you mentioned with the mitochondria, to create you know, energy or its purpose. So without enough cortisol... In the brain, it actually helps to show, you know, it brings it into the mitochondria. So it's, 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 it's integral in bringing it into mitochondria. And the mitochondria is the powerhouse, the source of energy of, of every cell of the body. That's where you're making energy. And, uh, and you have lots of them, but that's, you know, you do need to have something to help it get in, and that's cortisol. And if you don't have that, your brain sends out a signal, several of them. One of them is that um, you're in trouble, and that's number one. They say, hello, this is the brain broadcasting system. This is not a test, right? <laughs> and it sends out an emergency signal, but not the same pathway. It goes right to the center of the adrenal gland, and it causes the adrenal gland to have a surge of adrenaline. Now adrenaline, like I like the concept of the, the union truckers for the cortisol. Adrenaline's like the strike breakers. They come in, they can do the same thing, but they do it at a cost. It's too much, it's too little, it's never quite right, and fights break out online. <laughs> so that it, it makes you kind of very anxious. And a lot of things that adrenaline does has been attributed to cortisol, unfortunately. And cortisol has gotten a bad rep because of that. Yeah, and, and yet it's really about that under stressful conditions, the body needs enough cortisol as the front line of defense to fight against inflammation, to deal with stress, to deal with the release of amino acids, glucose, and fatty acids, to give you the energy to respond, without which a lot of people have chronic fatigue, especially if now they're depending on adrenaline, and that's, like you said, overreacting or overproduction, so you have this big you know, build up and then this crash or drop. I mean, some people, they, they scream, they get angry, they get upset, and it could be all related. Adrenaline is kind of like kindling, you know, that sort of like sets them up and it gives them energy, yes, and some people who don't have enough adrenaline will fall asleep. They'll be very tired. And the people that have a lot of adrenaline, it's sort of like this kindling that's waiting around and one little spark from someone and they explode. Right. So it's almost like uh, they need the trauma to get excited or the drama. I think you once said drama queens or drama people. Well, I call it the trauma drama effect. That's my book, right? The trauma drama effect, the chaos driven life, that they need to have that excitement. In so order things are too calm and relaxed. Oh, they it's get terrible. It, it's hard yeah. for them because yes. they can't produce enough synthetic 
cortisol or adrenaline, and they 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 trigger arguments. They create chaos. They create drama. Not on purpose. Not that they like the results of it. They don't even realize they're doing it. It's kind of like a dog being wagged by its tail, right? And they don't know why. I mean, just they just do it, and it and they don't like the results, but they can't help but do it, and because they need and and I see that people that are in in using drugs and everything, unfortunately, um, they have two modes. They're either uh, they're either bored out of their minds or they're overwhelmed. And in both two instances, they'll wind up using something because they can't stand how it feels. The bored part is before they're able to have enough fuel in their brain. It also makes you eat sweets, right? Because your brain cells, it's, it's like they, they're sort of isolated. They don't know that they're maybe, maybe diabetic and have lots of sugar in them, but it's not quite, it's, 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 it's out there. It's not in the brain cell. Sugar actually lowers your cortisol later on, and that's not a very good thing. And um, it, that's where the sugar lowers the cortisol, and then you're going to feel even worse later. And actually, insulin gets involved, and insulin increases, and then your sugar drops, and then you need to eat again. So it's the same sort of mechanism with alcohol. Alcohol will increase your cortisol briefly, and very briefly, and that's the, that's the, that's the kick in the head with it, because it's very brief, and then it drops off. And then you have to keep drinking to keep it elevated. So is it possible that if we were to take um, a population of quote-unquote alcoholics who have difficulty abstaining from, or they take a drink but one's not enough to keep drinking and they, they go on drinking binges on a regular basis, could this population then truly be a group that might be deficient in cortisol if they were to be measured? And what tests would you do to measure they actually, this? They actually are. There have been studies to show. Okay. There were studies out, out of Yale where they showed that, you know, in a group of people that were alcoholics, and there's more than one study, there's many, more than just out of Yale, that show, and that's something I mentioned in the paper, but it shows um, that people um, who who get stuck to alcohol, they, you have to have two components. You have to actually have it increase your course. You have to have it help you. And because of genetic differences, it doesn't do that to everyone. Um, but it has to give you a good feeling. Well, you referred to the journal, The Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. And in this journal, you put forth uh, several concepts about, say, an example of alcoholism, or it could be uh, addictions to, say, drugs. Maybe the underlying cause is, again, according to other studies, that these people have deficiencies of a very special hormone. And if we could just help them to replace this hormone, either through supplementation and or prescription hydrocortisone or cortisol and food and food and, and food and, but and hopefully healthy healthy right. food oh, right? absolutely it has to be and, and exercise it absolutely. all comes together absolutely. so now you come back full circle to approaching this individual not with uh, the belief that there's somehow something that they are doing this behavior out of being uh, wanting to be a misconduct yeah, there mean spirit yeah. it's yeah. something deep within biochemically that's right. missing it's that the same drive that would force someone to eat you know, sugar. Like, I need sugar now. That's that same drive. It's a, it's a, it's not something that I would, you know, like fault someone for. It's just, it's, it's, they're driven to do that. And it's a, it's a, it's a rescue thing. It's basically a survival mechanism. And so they do it to survive. They don't know why, but they do it to survive. 
Then they beat themselves up afterwards because it's not really what they wanted to do. They didn't want to feel like everyone feel bad, but they uh, but they can't help it, and then they feel like bad people themselves. It's it's a um, yes, yeah, it's, it's really a sad thing. I think the thing that helps people through that is to have an understanding that it's, that they're doing that as a survival mechanism. Why are they doing it? Know what these hormones do. And, and all the hormones have an effect on your emotions and uh, and your, your basic concepts of things also have an effect on everything. So if you have a certain belief system, the people that meditate seem to have a much better time of it. You know, they just kind of, you know, they... they have a different sense of things. Right? If you change how you perceive things and you change what you believe is bad for you, then you, you know, I look at it in terms of cortisol. I look at the total body cortisol as a vat, right, of cortisol. And then it's constantly being, it's a dynamic system. There's constantly stuff leaving and there's cortisol coming in. I, I draw a little spigot coming in too and it drops it in. Now, if you can't make enough to cover the holes on the bottom that, it's where it's being utilized. Emotions, like if your, your mother-in-law is coming, let's say, you don't like her, and then, so then the hole for emotion kind of widens. And so you pour out even more, you lose it. But if you change your concept about that, and, you know, it's okay if she comes, you won't, you won't use it up, you won't waste it as quickly. So if a person learns stress management techniques, uh, probably uh, meditation. We use timeline therapy to help people to release negative emotions, go back into their timelines so they don't keep repetitively as in a gestalt method of recalling all these past events and then building them up worse. And, you know, of course, with all of this uh, intervention, uh, we can't ignore the fact that these very same people uh, might benefit from deeper, more quality sleep, Probably, if we look at the nitric oxide cycle, find out if they're depleted there, report, restore some nitric oxide, may help the neurotransmitters. So deeper quality sleep in the REM phase may help them to produce better quality hormones. Maybe outdoors in the daylight, that helps with cortisol. So there's a number of lifestyle things they can do. Sleep, sleep is pivotal. pivotal. Sleep is, is absolutely essential. If you don't sleep and you don't sleep well, and a lot of people can't because they have making a lot of adrenaline at night. So anything that will help them to quiet that down where they can sleep is helpful. It's a matter of things go bump in the night. So I think that's when more fear there's more fear. Uh, but it's an adrenaline thing, and it's hard for them to go to sleep. They're constantly scanning. Not the adrenaline makes you do it. Not the devil makes you do it, but the adrenaline makes you do it. It's sort of a, a scanning process where you're looking constantly. You know, it's not on purpose, it's, it's a subconscious or unconscious kind of drive. You're not thinking, I'm going to scan everyone and make sure I'm okay, but you're alert to every noise. For the guys that, you know, they don't want to seem all spiked out, what I'll tell them is kind of like being a ninja, right? Because they can, they can tolerate that concept. It's right. not like they're all spiked out, they're just like a ninja. They're just aware of everything, and they are. One of the things we did, Dr. Shooter, is we, we went looking at the research and the evidence, and I, like you, attend workshops, and I'm a diplomate of the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. So with all this training, I decided that if I created a product called Adrenal DMG, see, if I called it Cortisol Restore, people wouldn't understand that because there's a bias against restoring cortisol. But people understand adrenaline, and they understand the adrenal gland, and dimethylglycine, if they look it up, they'll understand it helps the liver process chemicals and so forth and generates natural energy. But within the adrenal DMG, one of the core substances that's necessary is ad adrenal cortex, which is essentially 
the main derivative of cortisol. If you taste it, it tastes identical. It's got that little, you know, you know <laughs> strong taste, taste a little bit bitter. Bitter, bitter yeah. yeah. That cortisone does. And I know you use time-release hydrocortisone. There's cortisol that's available. Even hydrocortisone within the cream, some claim, will give yeah, some absorption. It's hard to absorb it. Yeah. But all that being said, if we help people to first recognize that there could be physical symptoms, and then you mentioned there's certain blood tests that can be done that, that may determine further that this person truly is um, cortisol deficient. It's not adrenal deficient. It's cortisol deficient first. Uh, what, what are some of the blood tests that you would do? Well, you know, I look at it from the, I guess you can do, you can do saliva testing and that supposedly gives you the free cortisol. There's hormones. Like a, a morning, noon, and well, late yeah, afternoon. Well, however, how many or times? Or blood tests you would do a couple times. I would right? do twice, but, but. Morning and, as so, you said, so afternoon. So hormones exist in the blood in two ways. Okay. One way is, uh, attached to a protein carrier and the other way is floating around by itself. It's free. It's a free, and I kind of look at it as a, like a three-dimensional thing where you have it's like a, let's say a half round with that part being the active site. And then if you have something else that comes along and covers it over, then it's not active. You know, it's really ready for elimination. So uh, it's the free component that's useful. So getting a total level is not as useful. And that's why, you know, some people use saliva. And it sometimes, you know, works really well. I'm kind of still, I used to do that. I'm kind of thinking about it some more, but. It's a, I like using bloods. It, I do a morning and I could do totally, it's very hard to get a free cortisol because it's so volatile. It's response so quickly that, you know, one loud noise and your cortisol, your free cortisol will go up very rapidly. So you get two of the more stable components of that, which is the total cortisol is fairly stable. Not very, but some more so than the free cortisol. And then you look at the binding protein. And you do a ratio, and that ratio is called the free cortisol index. And that you do it for morning and afternoon. And the and when that index is around six, people feel pretty good. It's an estimate of the free cortisol. And at six, people feel good. And I get people, well, myself, because I have similar things, but uh, I didn't even make a whole number in the afternoon. I was like, oh, I must have been really tired. But it's... Um, you know, when the number is five, they're sort of okay. When that number is four, but they're starting to really feel it. And it's almost to a person, everything that, you know, that's there, if you look at the numbers, it corroborates. It just basically, you know, like, tells you, okay, then you're on the right track. It shouldn't be used to make the diagnosis. The diagnosis needs to be made on history and physical. So you would include then transcortin or cortisol binding protein globulin which gives you the, the binding protein that is the carrier of the free cortisol. And you get a total cortisol, and then basically by a formula, you get the difference between the two, and you find out how much may be available in the free portion. It's sort of an estimate of, of the free cortisol. Right? Yeah, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but Dr. Terry Hertog once stated that you could live years deficient in testosterone, years deficient in, say, thyroid, uh, probably years deficient in growth hormone, but you couldn't live more than hours deficient in cortisol. If you were totally deficient, yes, that's true. Then you have Addison's disease. That's the worst case scenario. Or do some of these people get symptoms of sweaty palms? Is that one of the extremes? And then they, but under stress, they, they almost will faint. I mean, they'll, they'll just kind of go into a state of blackout almost, fatigue. I mean, even just standing up quickly doesn't even have to be a lot of stress that can give them or something called orthostatic hypotension, which is 
when you change position, your blood pressure drops. That's really what it means. And so um, it's one of the indicators that they have low cortisol, that orthostatic hypotension. And what it is is that part of the cortisol is used to keep your to keep your um, blood pressure at normal levels. And if you have not quite enough of it, your blood pressure will go down. And that certainly can be very dangerous. And that's true of aldosterone too. Aldosterone is supposed to hold fluids in the tissues. And when you get up suddenly, maybe you'll feel that same sudden weakness, uh, another symptom of low aldosterone, which is usually measured in, say, a 24-hour urine, if it's too low total amount, uh, they may drink some, a glass of water and within, you know, literally minutes they're feeling like they have to use the restroom because they can't hold the fluid in their tissues. It just goes right through them. And it's for some people, it can be it's, uh, and some people, like myself, I have too much aldosterone. And when I get anxious, okay. only my cortisol goes down, but my aldosterone levels, because of extra ACTH, will go up. And then I spill potassium and hold on to sodium and get puffy. So, so there's variations of the same thing. It's not, it's not, you know, just whenever anyone says, like, oh, well, you know, too much cortisol is bad. Well, that's silly. I mean, they say cortisol is bad for you. That's basically generalizing and generalizing about it. You can't make a general statement about everyone. Everyone's just somewhat different. They have different components of it. Now, you mentioned Addison's disease, Dr. Susie Shooter, but um, in the case of, I, I read John F. Kennedy, one of the former presidents, he had a severe case of Addison's disease, and the doctors at that time understood that he was deficient in cortisol, and they prescribed, at that time, hydrocortisone, which... I think they gave him prednisone. Oh, they did give him prednisone, which is a long-acting corticosteroid. Is that, isn't that something that ended up causing him some, maybe, tissue bone Side breakdown? Effects? Absolutely. And he had back problems for That's much right. of his life? So what happens is that... But um, he should have, they could have opposed it with anabolics, such as testosterone, well, thyroid, DHA, right? But they also could have given him just cortisol and not the mega, like, synthetic one. So what's the difference between like, cortisol, hydrocortisone, which is made in the adrenal glands, which is natural to the body? If you take hydrocortisone, you can't really see any difference between what you take and what you make. It's the same molecule. Which is the same we put in adrenal DMG. It's a it's a cortisol. It's a uh, adrenal cortex which right. has the the cortisol in it. Right. But it's safe. It's got a it's short action thing. in the body, right? Thing, right. It does. Which is why I tend to use if I use hydrocortisone in the pharmaceutical preparation. I'll use uh, some methyl cellulose in it, which releases it slowly. And we have methyl cellulose in adrenal DMG. Right. That's same so idea. then it releases it slowly. It's very good. So. If you have, because I'm an MD and prescription, I'll do that. Right. But not everybody is, is amenable to that. Oh, we'll have to take that. It's a terrible plan. Um, was it, uh, James Wilson said in his book, he said, if you give cortisol, it can re your, your system can reboot and then you may not need it. And I thought, well, it doesn't make any sense because he and I lectured back to back. And he didn't have any references, but he said he saw it, you know, clinically. I thought, well, and I said, at the time I didn't think I did, but I thought about it. I said, yeah, I think I do. There are people that don't need to continue it. They're, it gives them their arrest so that they're not draining it all the time, and they may just need it sometimes when they have the special, like, really excessive amounts of stress. Well, under stress of, of extreme sports or maybe uh, it's uh, times during the year where they have a flu or cold. Uh, didn't Dr. William McKinley Jeffries in his book, Safe Uses of Cortisol, he stated that upping the dose of uh, hydrocortisone or cortisol could very well knock out the flu symptoms. And yet it's almost a contradiction because some people think of cortisol as somehow depressing the immune system. So what is the action there? The difference is that 
too much cortisol can suppress the immune system. So, okay. so it's a matter of degree. So it's so um, I like you know what you know, Terry. I used an analogy that was a little bit different. I used like if you shoot a fly with a cannon, you have big holes in your ass. I like his analogy. I like Terry. I like Terry. I mean, you may get the fly eventually, but you have big holes in your ass. Right. But I like his analogy better because it just kind of was very visual. He said it's good to drink six to eight glasses of water a day. So you drink six to eight gallons of water. That's not good for you. Right. No. So then that's the difference. So now we attribute the you know, cortisol properties to the six or eight gallons of water. And we say, oh, water's bad for you. Which is like the synthetic prednisones and corticosteroids, because they're so strong, even in five milligrams, the action is just lingers in the body. So it's not a matter of, it's not even a matter of like amounts per, because it's going to act differently in the body. So okay. what happens is that you have a molecule and it has a certain three-dimensional spatial orientation. And, they, and, and the pharmaceutical company will take and put a chemical moiety, like a chemical grouping onto it. I, not so that they can improve on Mother Nature, so they can patent it, really. Right. It's, it's a business, really. I'm and glad I don't you point them. that out yeah. to people. Yeah. And, and it basically what it does is that it's almost like cortisol. It's not quite, because it contorts the molecule three-dimensionally. And so because it's slightly out of whack, out of, you know, out of alignment from what regular cortisol would be, when it attaches to the receptor, it's almost as if it screws in. It keeps it on, 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 all the time. So that's why it's way more potent, even dose per dose. You know, even if you do all the adjustments, mm -hmm. it's still extremely potent because it's on all the time. The body was not meant to have it on all the time. It was meant to have it on and then off. If you're releasing it slowly, that's good. But the mechanism at the receptor, it's still on and off. It's not like on, 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 on. So that's why you have such major side effects with something like prednisone or dexamethasone, which is very, very potent. So the spin would be, if I, if I had a drug company, I would say, well, you we only have to take it once a day. Right? I would think of some positive aspect. Yet it's more healthy to take cortisol the way the body releases it, and then it sustains it during a brief period of three to four hours. If you add a little methyl cellulose, it'll stay a little longer, say six hours. Well, six hours, even if you don't, just take it, right? Although it's not sick. You know, I found when people just took it without the methyl cellulose part of it, it would just go up and it would go down. And then all day long they were constantly chasing themselves around, as I did too. Yeah. I know in our intake uh, clients, we have a short version uh, that reviews all the pro probable most important hormones and the relationship to symptoms. And then later, because you always say, treat the patient, don't treat the labs, I mean, you're, you're dealing with the patient and what's their issue, not only the, the history and physical, but some of these questions, do they ring true for a cortisol deficiency, shortness of breath, allergic reaction, sneezing, runny nose, sore throat, uh, need 20 minutes to one hour daily to nap or quiet time just to get through the day, low resistance to stress, dizzy when standing up, uh, low blood pressure, uh, fast beating heart in stressful situations, feel better after eating something sweet, craving sugar, salty, spicy foods, digestive problems, nausea, underweight, inflammatory arthritis, inflammation to, uh, intolerance, excuse me, to medications, food uh, allergies, allergic symptoms present in the nose, throat, ears, and skin, brown age spots, and large white spots of depigmentation or eczema. Are all these probable relationships to low cortisol? You may have to be careful because when, when, what I've noticed is that when people go through these lists, they go, well, I don't have that, I don't have that. You don't have to have everything to have it. You can have maybe just a few things. So like, not everyone that has a little cortisol is thin. If they eat a lot of 
stuff because they have this craving for food mm-hmm. or to this make cra- up for them. Oh, because yeah. they just need something because it increases their cortisol. They feel better briefly. So if they eat sugar now, they're going to eat a lot of it. But they're going to gain weight if they have a lot of insulin. It's going to make them gain weight. So everyone is thin. So is it a myth that people, if they take something that restores their cortisol level, that they're automatically going to gain weight as all the TV commercials led people to believe that, that somehow this cortisol is the bad guy, we've got to suppress it because it's the cause of you know, abdominal obesity and so forth? Yeah. That, that's just sort of like, that, that's actually silly because what they're doing is they're, so if you look at it as a, as a pie chart, right, like a half pie chart, basically it's a rule of thirds that applies in medicine. It's not really, um, you know, in one way or another, basically one third of, you know, the rule of thirds says one third of the people have this, you know, too much, one third of the people have too little, one third of the people have just the right amount. And so two thirds of the population doesn't have low cortisol. Actually, two thirds of the population doesn't have high cortisol either, right? right? So to say that I think abdominal obesity really is a lot of insulin and poor diets, right? Yeah. So it's not just cortisol, but what they're doing is they're taking a page from the people that have too much. They're saying, well, that's why we have a lot of you know, obesity. No, it's not. Because you eat too much. You eat too much of the bad things, right? Right. That'll give you abdominal, McDonald's will give you, or whatever it is that you eat. The now. trigger could be a, a, a stimulus from low cortisol deficiency in the cravings, but then when they sit there at the fast food chain and they eat the wrong foods, they could have a cravings for healthy foods. And maybe in that case, if yeah. they eat too much fruits and vegetables, they're not going to gain much weight at all, if any. Yeah. But, but I mean, you can have too much, um, if you have, uh, like, you, can, you don't have to have low cortisol to eat fast foods and, and have too much right. and get fat. Right. So it's not. It's so to say to to generalize and to say that everyone who gains weight oh it has to be from too much cortisol. That's silly because it, it's a generalization. And, and you know it's something that doctors get caught up into. You said it was my thing that treat the patient, not the labs. Um, that was something I learned in medical school, and that's something that all doctors learn. I, I thought. I'm pretty sure it is. Very few of them know to replace cortisol. I've been in the gym. Yeah, I've been in Gold's Gym and some of these famous gyms and really famous bodybuilders, and you see them hacking and sneezing and blowing their nose, and you're going, wow. You know, <laughs> and it's, it's quite likely, exactly like you said, they have a huge amount of anabolic uh, buildup from 10 times the dose of natural testosterone. Uh, they're using synthetics often, and... Uh, uh, they, they may be aware of the need to cut out excess estrogens. They use anosterol and arumidex and so forth drugs, uh, but they have no clue about the importance of cortisol and how that would actually, in my experiences, when you're working out and you drive the body hard, and if you can support the adrenals with proper dosages of cortisol where it's necessary and supporting good sleep and quality uh, workouts, then you can actually increase the testosterone and growth hormone levels to higher levels than normal up to where they work synergistically for the body. You don't drop you get, out you from congestion, workout. colds, You get a better workout. You get a better workout, and uh, you don't have any downtime. I mean, the amount of downtime these people have in the gym because they get a cold or flu, and they think, oh, someone sneezed on me. Well, it's not exactly that. It's an internal milieu of their own, their own system. <laughs> Hey guys, I got to tell you, the new coaching program has come out and we're excited about the coaching program because the coaching program is at nickdelgado.com. 
We'd love to help to guide you, to coach you on your health journey. And now you can apply for the special coaching program. And you can also get our special book, Immune Rejuvenation. Just leave your name and email, and you're going to get one of the best books written on this whole subject. We are excited to know, Anne, and I got to tell you that, you know, the whole idea of immune rejuvenation has come.